Asymmetrical Haircuts Justice Update with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All right. Hi, Steph. Hey, Janet. So, what can someone who's been in a murderous armed group for more than 20 years, controlled by a charismatic leader, who's been found guilty of more than 60 counts of war crimes, crimes against humanity, including murder, rape, forced marriage, torture, sexual slavery, enslavement and forced pregnancy, what can he possibly tell a court that will maybe mitigate the sentence against him? Well, I don't know what it could be, but I definitely don't think Dominic Ongwen, a former commander of the Lord Resistance Army in Uganda, managed to do it when he addressed the court last week in his personal statement. He did talk about his youth. He was abducted as a child himself. He's one of the kind of victims turned perpetrators, which makes the case very, very special and really unseen, uh, at least at the ICC before. So this is the first time we heard him speak in court uh, during the trial. He did say something before the trial started uh, where he told the court that he wasn't the LRA and didn't personify the LRA. Yeah, and that was still at the heart of this personal statement from Ongwen, this sense that he wanted to have of his distance from the LRA or not really representing the LRA. This statement came as part of the sentencing hearing. So the judges have already found him guilty. And this is an opportunity for prosecution, defence, victims, representatives to give their opinions on what factors the judges should take into account when deciding how many years he should go to jail. Yeah, so prosecutors argued for 20 to 30 years, uh, or at least 20 years, they they, uh, phrased it. 30 years, of course, being the maximum that somebody can get at the ICC, equivalent to uh, life imprisoned. Victims argued uh, for a life sentence. Some even wanted a death sentence, but of course the ICC does not hand those down. But the defense uh, really focused in on uh, Ongwen as a victim and said he should get no more than 10 years and be given the chance to rehabilitate himself in Uganda. But the central event, you know, the real focus from the rest of the world, at least on these two days, was on Ongwen's own personal statement. Uh, His lawyer, Crispus Ayena Odongo, suggested that he might take about 45 minutes, an hour. But in the end, it was more than two hours or maybe around two hours. And I found it fascinating. Yeah, if you want to see it for yourself, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's in English translation. It's not his voice, so we won't play it now. But as Janet said, it's really fascinating. It was meandering at times, but also very angry for what was done to him. And very little was said really about what he did personally. So what we've done is caught up with Sarah Kasande, the head of office for the International Centre for Transitional Justice in Uganda. Uh, She's been working with colleagues to gather reactions from communities in northern Uganda over the last week. And we asked her first, though, rather than about the communities, which we'll come to later, what struck her personally from what Ongwen had to say? It was quite striking uh, to hear him describe uh, details of... um, his experience um, from the time of his abduction, the horrific uh, experiences he endured while he was uh, in captivity, what he had to do to survive, and also uh, insights about the brutality uh, that was meted out on um, LRE captives. I I wondered at some point whether defense should have Let him take the stand at the trial uh, to have this part of the trial record rather than the record of the sentencing hearing. 
uh, I think have been quite uh, remarkable. But it was also key for the communities as well to hear him speak. But he, he unburdened himself. He realized this is a point to tell his side of the story, how he perceived what happened to him, who he saw as, his, as responsible for his fate. Again, one thing I also found interesting is he talked about himself, Ongwen, what happened to him, who failed him. He really did not engage with the crimes that he is accused of committing. He didn't really get into those. The only time he did so was he, when he denied being present at Pajule, which is something that's still contentious, but he really didn't engage with that. And um, I found that uh, uh, interesting and uh, a bit disappointing, I must say. He, he never really tried to look at what were the effects of some of these crimes or how these crimes may have impacted the community. Just on that, I mean, it wasn't really an apology, was it? It wasn't, a, uh, it wasn't saying, I'm sorry. No, it, it was not. It was not an apology. It was a description that, look, I'm a victim. I was failed. All these things that you're accusing me that happened, I endured worse. So, you know, he compared himself to being, to have suffered more than Jesus Christ. But he never really engaged with his um, responsibility uh, for these uh, violations and the crimes that he's being accused of. So it was not an apology at all. And I think uh, for the communities, uh, especially those in the case locations, this was um, quite uh, disappointing. And uh, it really showed that he, he's not, he does not have any remorse and he does not acknowledge that these violations happened while he was at the helm of one of the brigades in the LRA. And the ICC for the affected communities organized screenings together with the Foundation for Justice and Development Initiative. So what were some of the reactions in the victim communities? People listened keenly throughout as he spoke. And uh, the, the proceedings were transmitted in uh, Acholi, so they could hear him directly, unlike the rest of us who had to listen to the English translation. So there the were mixed reactions. One, again, there was disappointment that he did not take responsibility for the violations that occurred, the abuses, especially in those case locations, Lukodi, uh, Abok, well, I felt that he should have at least acknowledged uh, the harms that had occurred. Uh, but there were also some of those who were sympathetic about what he endured as a child, uh, the, the brutality. They affirmed that all those who attempted to escape endured uh, unspeakable brutality. And uh, therefore, the, the, they believe, you remember the gory details that Gwen described when he attempted to have his first escape. They also found the issue of PTSD. Uh, There are quite a number of ex-combatants in uh, Northern Uganda who have severe cases of PTSD, who've not got any form of psychosocial support or counseling. Uh, There are high cases of suicide in Northern Uganda. So that is something that resonated with uh, a number of ex-combatants. Sarah also mentioned that people believe that Kony himself, as a brigade commander, should have done more to persuade Kony, that is the head of the LRA, Joseph Kony, not to commit atrocities. 
And she said that community members also focused on the spirituality issues. Uh, Kony himself is believed to have spiritual powers and Ongwen described things like stones which became rainbow coloured and when they were thrown that they were exploded and this links back to the Alice Lequenya Holy Spirits movement, the uprising that also happened in northern Uganda and showed kind of the linkages between the different rebel movements. In his speech, Ongwen also spoke very condemningly about collaboration from local community leaders with the LRA, saying that they were given food, that they were given boots, and maybe also information about uh, government troop movements. And he kept saying, oh, I don't want to say the name, but I might if I have to. But people uh, on the ground, Sarah said, really wanted to hear those names and want to see accountability on all sides. And she also noticed that Ongwen continues to argue that he alone shouldn't be held responsible for all of the LRA crimes, that other LRA senior leaders have previously been amnested by the Ugandan government. So Ongwen himself sounded really quite confused still as to why what he described as his surrender wasn't enough to keep him out of court. You could tell from his uh, statement, uh, describing, first of all, not only the collaborators, but also the overtures that he made to Salim Saleh, the president's brother. So he, he surrendered. He thought that, look, I've surrendered. I've abandoned the LRA. Why am I being held accountable? Why isn't anyone else being held accountable? And it also ties in with the fact that uh, this whole accountability process, both at the national and the domestic, has only focused on the LRA. So he was right to say that, look, why am I the only one being held accountable for almost everything that the LRA has, uh, has done in northern Uganda? Why aren't uh, government troops being held accountable? Why aren't others also being held accountable? What about those commanders who have been uh, granted uh, amnesty? So it's it's understandable that it was confusing for him, especially considering he believes that he surrendered. He was not captured, as he kept repeating. I was not captured. I surrendered. So why am I here? You're supposed to help me recover, rebuild my life, not hold me accountable. So, yes, yeah, so it, 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 it does make sense. But that's not um, for the thousands of victims, especially those in those four case locations, uh, that the judge uh, uh, during the delivery of the judgment read to them, this accountability process was key in providing them with the necessary recognition of the violations that they suffered. And just on a side note, talking about all these different accountability processes in Uganda, we also asked Sarah what's been happening in the only other LRA case, the one at the International Crimes Division, that of Thomas Coelho. Coyello has been charged with more than 90 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity, but there's no sign for the moment that that case is really proceeding. The Coyello trial was adjourned right at the outset or the onset of the pandemic. Now it's also been beleaguered by a lack of resources. The court hasn't been given um, sufficient resources to resume the trial, but it's essential that it's concluded. I mean, it's to me... uh, a grave violation of Coelho's rights to be in pretrial detention for 10 years. It's over 10 years now. He was captured in 2009. His trial started in 2011. We're now in 2021. The prosecution is nowhere close to halfway their witnesses. So it's it's very disappointing how this uh, process has uh, progressed. And I hope that other contexts could draw lessons 
from the Ugandan unfortunate experience on what is needed really for the effective uh, prosecution of the international crimes in domestic courts. Political will is one aspect, it's very essential, having an appropriate legal framework. And one of the reasons Coelho's trial delayed was this mismatch of legal frameworks, what domestic law provides vis-a-vis -vis what international law provides. It's not enough to say we're setting up a court, we're appointing judges. There's a lot of work that has to be done in the background to see that the court is able to fulfill its mandate. So finally, we also asked Sarah what she'd heard from communities about the length of a sentence. As we've said, prosecution, defence, victims, representatives all had different views in court. So what were communities saying? One thing that was common was, OK, we're wanting to have a severe sentence, but we also want to have time for him to return to the community, take responsibility and reconcile. So I think that there's that two level, yes, for especially those in the case locations, the Lokodi and uh, Abok, where he committed his crimes. So, okay, yes, let him go serve a sentence, a reasonable sentence. But uh, what's important is he has to return to the community and take responsibility for what he did. And of course, the question of reparations um, the, for the communities right now, their calling is, okay, the trial is done. Now let's talk about reparations. When are we going to start getting reparations? When, the pro when is the process going to start? So that's what most victims have been looking forward to. So we're back to reparations. And now the pressure is on the Trust Fund for Victims, um, again, to deliver to a specific community. The fund has been working in Uganda for a very long time on an assistance mandate, and we've looked into that very profoundly for justiceinfo.net. We'll put links also in the show notes. But recently, the fund launched a full reparations uh, program in Mali. So maybe with Ongwen, they will also uh, have all this preparation and all this assistance mandate so that they can mount a reparations program quickly. Yeah. Um, we've also had a previous podcast where we've had some extracts from the Trust Fund for Victims launch of that program in Bamako. The big question, though, I think always comes at the end of these processes. What will actually happen? What changes will happen in people's lives as a result of a trial like Ongwen's to really make them have the sense that they've seen justice? And a big part in that, of course, is also going to be the sentencing that is set for May 6, when we'll know how many years he will have to spend in prison and we'll be watching. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.